You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The scientific method is tried and true. It's provided a reliable explanation of the workings of nature from basic physics to biomedicine, an idea built upon the premise of empirical evidence. It gave us a theory of gravity and taught us that alchemy is not a gold standard. Yet the scientific method is the gold standard for understanding how the universe and everything in it behaves. However, the scientists who apply it are fallible. And the politicians who twist it to win votes well, don't get us started. Although, now that I am started, I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get the wide-angle view on science and technology, and we devote one episode a month to critical thinking, skeptic check. In this episode, accounts of the way the practice and public discussion of science can run off the rails. A flurry of new books puts scientists under a microscope and holds politicians to account. The titles don't sugarcoat. They include phrases such as sloppy science, worthless cures, stories of science gone wrong, and how about how politicians mistake, misrepresent, and utterly mangle science. And these missteps can have tangible, even devastating consequences. How science does it right, and when it goes pear-shaped, it's Skeptic Check, Science Breaking Bad. Who isn't drawn to a quick fix, a cure-all? One pill a day and say goodbye to baldness. Your head will sprout the long, luxurious locks of a hunky hero on the cover of a romance novel. Hang on, though. You have to know your audience. Oh, right. Okay. After one week of use, this amazing pill allows you to grow the giant lumberjack beard of an urban cafe hipster. Happy and hirsute. But it's not just remedies that appeal to our vanity, making superlative claims. It can be treatments for serious health conditions, pain, chronic disease, debilitating injury, the pressure to produce extraordinary results is one reason why the biomedical industry is itself ailing, says this reporter. I'm Richard Harris. I've been a science correspondent at NPR for about 30 years, and I am author of Rigor Mortis. Richard Harris has reported on a wide range of topics in science for NPR, but in 2014, his focus turned to biomedical research. Rigor Mortis is his book. The subtitle is even more grim. How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. 
U.S. taxpayers spend $30 billion annually to fund biomedical research, he says. By some accounts, half of the results are irreproducible, and in some cases, the science is just wrong. Drawing on interviews with top biomedical researchers, Mr. Harris lays out how skewed incentives lead to poor, even dangerous results. A hyper-competitiveness among scientists, especially young scientists trying to launch careers, permeates biomedical research, he says. Take, for example, the pressure to publish. It's important to have your research submitted to a journal for peer review where other scientists can look for holes in your work, challenge you on your findings. So far, that's one of the most important components of the scientific method. However, the recent trend to push for publication in only top-tier journals, such as Nature, Science, and Cell, has become a problem. Well, it's a problem because those journals take very few papers, and the way you get into one of those journals is you have some sort of astonishing, astounding finding. And the concern is that if you don't have an astonishing, astounding finding, you will uh, tweak your data to make it look better than it is in order to get in one of those journals. Unfortunately, it's the coin of the realm in science is to get published in these really top-line journals. And even though great science gets published in journals that are lower on the pecking order, if you will, uh, they don't count as much toward your career. So that's a squeeze not only for a young postdoc, but it's a squeeze for scientists trying to get tenure or trying to get funding or anybody in biomedical research. So it's more than just publish or perish. I mean, publish, yeah, but publish the right place. Absolutely. And unfortunately, what has happened inadvertently is a lot of universities have sort of turned over their quality measurements to the journal editors, because I talked to somebody else who was looking at job applicants at Johns Hopkins University, and they had 400 applicants for a single professor's job. And the first thing they did was, instead of really understanding the qualities of all 400 scientists, the first question they said was, well, who's published in Science, Nature, or Cell? And if you didn't get that, you didn't make the cut. So it's really unfortunate, because the university should be making those judgments, not leaving it to the journal editors, who sort of do it indirectly. They don't even intend to be saying, these are the best scientists. They're just saying these are hot papers that we want to publish because we think a lot of people will cite them, and that boosts our ratings, essentially. Well, in essence, it sounds like the journals are are doing the job interviews for universities. It is. It's an unfortunate thing. They don't really want to be in that position, but that's actually where they are. You claim the language we're using is further charging this atmosphere. For example, there's been something like a 15,000% increase in words like unprecedented and novel, innovative, robust in journal articles over the past 40 years. How has this increased hype related to the pressure to publish in these top-tier journals? Well, it's part and parcel, because uh, if your data aren't that great, maybe you want to add a couple of superlatives. The point is that instead of saying, this is the best science I can do, uh, the pressure is on to say, this is the most exciting science I can do. And those are not necessarily the same thing. And unfortunately, it creates incentives for people to exaggerate or cut corners or maybe not do that one experiment that they could do that would undercut their findings. And I think it's corrosive for the whole process of science. Well, would you maintain that it is resulting in uh, lowering of the quality of the research that's published? Well, it's hard for me to make that judgment, but what I can say is that there's a lot of evidence that a great deal of what gets published does not stand up to the test of time. According to some estimates, about half of all that gets published in the biomedical literature actually uh, is not verifiable by other people who try to do that work. One solution to this competitive culture, you write, is uh, provided by psychologist Brian Nosek, who suggested that scientists should be judged by paper quality, not quantity. Now, that, that sounds like, you know, I don't know, apple pie and motherhood, but it doesn't work that way, does it? 
his argument is it could work that way. When he was going up for a, a promotion at the University of Virginia, they said, print out every paper that you've published for the uh, review committee. And he said, I've published 100 papers. He said, I know they're not going to sit down. Nobody's going to sit down and read 100 papers to judge my capability. But he said, if when he started at the university, if he had been told, when it's time for your review for tenure, all we're going to do is ask you to send us your three or four best papers so we can really see you know, what you do at the top of your game. And, uh, and that's probably more meaningful for the long-term output of science. And he says if everybody did that, then it would take some of the pressure off of this endless cycle of desire to just churn out the next paper and, and keep the paper count high and focus more on quantity rather than quality. Richard, you uh, cover a lot of science. What prompted you to take on this particular aspect of research? Well, in 2014, I was asked to go and take a a fresh look at biomedical research, which I hadn't covered very extensively since the 1990s, really. And the first thing I did was I sort of took the temperature, the health of the field as a whole, and I discovered that in real terms, funding for biomedical research had been decreasing by about 20% over the course of the decade, and the pressures were growing, these academic pressures. And I thought, there must be some really important consequences of this this funding squeeze. And so that's how I launched out to sort of explore this terrain and to understand what was going on in biomedical research. And it turns out that I was not the only one who was thinking about this. There is a body of literature in the scientific literature of scientists who've been looking at this with growing alarm and concern and have been exploring it, trying to measure it, trying to talk about what sorts of actions they can take, and basically acknowledging this as an issue and saying, look, we as a community of biomedical researchers need to figure out how to take this on and how to solve this, because this isn't good for anyone. In your book, you mention that another major problem in biomedical science is reproducibility, and perhaps you can explain the concept of (laughs) reproducibility in biomedical science and the problem. Basically, what happens is a scientist comes up with a finding and they publish it in the scientific literature. And if it's an exciting finding that might lead to a new drug, uh, the first thing a drug company wants to do is want to say, can we believe this? So a drug company will take the journal article and they'll read it and they'll assemble the ingredients and they'll try to reproduce the results. And uh, unfortunately, a great deal of the time, they're unable to do so. A scientist named Glenn Begley at the drug company Amgen decided toward the end of his time there at Amgen that he wanted to just go back and look at some of the studies that he'd done that he thought, you know, if this was a real great study, if these had worked out, these would be really great leads for drugs. And so he picked 53 promising studies from the biomedical literature, and he tried really hard to reproduce them. And he even enlisted the aid of the original scientists sometimes who had done the work and say, look, can you do it in your lab and see if you can get the same results? And of those 53, only six could be reproduced, he said. So uh, that's a pretty dismal success rate, 11% or something like that. And so he that was one of the sort of the calls to the community to say, hey, we have a problem with biomedical research. And In fact, that is a very significant problem. If a lot of the stuff just sort of looks great and doesn't actually stand the test of time, that slows progress in the search for cures and treatments of disease and really the understanding of biology and and medicine. Well, okay, but maybe what it's suggesting is that biomedical research is tough. You know, in astronomy, you don't have this problem quite so much. I think that far more than 85% of all the things that are published are irreproducible. I think you can do better than that in astronomy. But on the other hand, maybe biomedical research has its own problems. It's more difficult. And, you know, when you try and reproduce it, you run into the same problem. So maybe the difficulty here is in the experiments trying to reproduce the original experiments. 
Yeah, it, that's absolutely possibly the case. It, it could be the original experiment that was wrong or the attempt to reproduce that's wrong. You don't always know. And there's no question that biomedical research is really tough to do. Living cells, living organisms, uh, you know, they're different every time you pick them up and try to use them and play with them and so on. So there are many techniques in biomedical research to try to account for that. You do your experiment the right number of times with the right number of animals. You check your ingredients. There are lots of things you can do to make sure that these are, are as good as you can get them. One of the problems I found in writing the book is that many people don't do all of those steps. They don't check to make sure that, for example, if they're experimenting with a cell line, they don't check to make sure it's actually a breast cancer cell, and it may turn out to be a melanoma cell. That actually happens quite a lot. And so there will always be errors and, and failures in science. And in fact, science wouldn't progress if we didn't have some, some failures and errors. But on the other hand, there are ways to reduce the unnecessary ones. Does this say anything about the kinds of drugs we should trust? I mean, do you, do you worry when your doctor gives you a prescription that maybe this is based on bad science? Well, that certainly has happened a bit over the years, but most of these failures happen before the drug gets to the market. Scientists will find some exciting thing that works well in a mouse. A drug company will spend tens of millions or maybe even $100 million developing it into a drug and trying it in people. And probably 80, 60 to 80 percent or maybe even more of those drugs fail in these expensive human trials. So these drug companies have huge wasted effort in the drug pipeline. And so if you could reduce those failures sort of coming into the gate, they would have a much higher success rate. One would hope drugs would cost less as a result, and we'd have more success. These problems mostly happen before the drugs end up in our medicine cabinets. I have to say, you know, if you're suffering some disease, a serious disease, and someone has developed a drug they claim is effective against it, I don't know that you're going to get into an argument with your doctor about reproducibility, are you? You'd be first in line to opt to be part of a trial. You might be, but on the other hand, if you know that 99% of the trials of that class of drug have failed, you might think, you know, why am I wasting my time on this? It's unfair to those folks to give them false hope as well. I think that if scientists spent more time understanding better how to get the drugs into the pipeline, we'd have fewer of these failures. So, so everyone thinks, oh, I'll get into a clinical trial and, and I'll get the drug that's not approved yet that will really work. Well, guess what? Most of the time that's not true. Most of the time those drugs, in fact, do not work. And sometimes they're harmful. Well, can you give me an example of a case when a drug that seemed safe turned out not to be well, one of the most famous cases was combinations of hormones for women, like estrogen and progesterone. And women were given these, and they were told, oh, this is really good for your health or whatever after postmenopausal use and so on. And it turns out that they were actually doing quite a lot of harm. And many women actually probably were at a higher risk of breast cancer and heart disease and so on. And eventually, more careful studies were done, and those drugs were removed from the market. But, but there were many women who died needlessly uh, from taking those drugs. Obviously, they're still used in the correct context these days, but they're not used as they were in days gone by. And so their current use is thought to be safe. But that was quite a shocking lesson when people realized that those drugs in that application had made it onto the market and were actually doing much more harm than good. The studies you're citing here, I mean, they're expensive. Many of them aren't reproducible. A majority of them aren't reproducible. It sounds like you're kind of making the case that, well, funding science, or at least biomedical research, is not a good idea. Well, I'm certainly not making that argument at all. My argument is that there's a funding imbalance and that people are fighting so hard to get access to the scarce dollars that they are tempted to cut corners, that they're tempted to make their results seem bigger than they are and so on and exaggerate and so on. And I think that if, if there's a better match between the amount of 
of money that was available and the amount of people who needed funding support, scientists could relax a little bit. They could do their science with more care. They wouldn't feel this hyper-competitive environment. And I think science would, in fact, be better. I think the worst thing, actually, would be to cut funding for biomedical research because that only makes this problem that much worse. It sounds, Richard, as if uh, the problems you're delineating here all trace back to the wrong incentives. I mean, in some ways, I guess it's like politics, where the biggest incentive seems to be, you know, making sure you get reelected, as opposed to doing the job you were elected to do. For scientists, it's uh, getting that job instead of, you know, doing the best possible science. Couldn't we just somehow change the incentives? I mean, clearly, we need to do something here. Absolutely. And it would be wonderful to change the incentives. Uh, More easily said than done, though. I mean, one way to do it is to uh, reduce the hyper-competitive pressure to get funding, to make more funding available or more painful. But equally realistic would be to say there are too many mouths to feed in science. Maybe we should ask some people who are in science right now to leave universities and go find other things to do. Not my preferred option, but I mean, that's the other way of balancing the equation. You can ask deans to think more about the science that the scientists that they're hiring are doing and less about their ability to draw in grant money. But unfortunately, universities rely very heavily on this grant money. So they judge the scientists by how much money they bring in. You could ask universities, which have public universities in particular, have been gradually reducing the amount of money that they make available to support the great things that go on in their institutions, and they rely more and more heavily on federal grants. If the state of California, for example, funds only 3% of the work that goes on at the University of California, San Francisco, one of the great medical schools in the world, the scientists there have to rely almost entirely on getting money from outside sources, federal government and and private donors and so on. So, So there's plenty of things you could do, but as in so much in life, none of them is easy to do. Richard Harris, thank you so very much for speaking with us. I enjoyed it very much, Seth. Richard Harris is a longtime NPR science correspondent, and he is the author of Rigor Mortis, How Sloppy Science Creates Worthless Cures, Crushes Hope, and Wastes Billions. Well, that title alone doesn't give you much cause for optimism. No, and he's right about so much of it, that the incentives are largely wrong, all this preening and exaggeration. You know, instead of throwing out the outlier points on your plot, those are the ones you emphasize that's all wrong. I would take issue with the suggested cure, perhaps, though, that we just need to fund more science. I'm all for that. Of course I am. But on the other hand, it's not clear to me that that results in better science. I think. But he's saying that the scramble is for the funds, and because there's a, there's a scramble for dwindling funds, scientists are going to use these means to try to get a hold of the I, funding. I hear that. To me, what would be better is to give money for longer periods of time than what we do now. Typically now it's for a year or two. The scientists I know spend one-fourth of their time writing grant proposals, and maybe one in six of those will get funded. So it's enormously inefficient, maybe just lengthening the length of the grants. So it's the funding mechanism that you take issue with, not the scientific method. No, the scientific method is, uh, you know, it's bulletproof, I think. It's bulletproof. Even following the scientific method can sometimes lead us down the wrong path. Consider that there was actually a time, and not so long ago, when the sure cure for schizophrenia was to give the patient a lobotomy. Stories of so-called brilliant scientific ideas that led to disaster next. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science Skeptic Check, Science Breaking Bad.
everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. Some scientific breakthroughs are just that, and they can save lives, lots of them. Smallpox claimed millions and millions of victims before Edward Jenner developed a vaccine. Physicist and chemist Marie Curie's work was vital in developing X-rays for diagnosis and surgery. And Sir Alexander Fleming's preoccupation with mold meant that ailments such as scarlet fever, strep throat, pneumonia, countless other infections were finally defeated by penicillin. But sometimes what seems like a brilliant idea leads to disaster down the line, the kind of innovation that is championed as stunning breakthrough, the superlative that Richard Harris referred to, once unleashed, can be destructive to society. Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong, is the title of Paul Offit's latest book, examining the ways in which science innovation does not always equal progress. Dr. Offit is professor of pediatrics and an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is the co-inventor of a vaccine against rotavirus, which is the cause of diarrhea, that has helped save the lives of millions of children. He tells stories, however, about how even promising developments in medicine and other sciences can go awry. Here's a for instance for which we'll go back in history to set up this modern-day scourge about 6,000 years ago, the Sumerians migrated from Persia and settled between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Mesopotamia, now mostly Iraq. Modern civilization owes a lot to them. They invented writing, remember cuneiform, and agriculture. Among their crops, barley, wheat, dates, grapes, and one special plant that they called the plant of joy. It was the opium poppy. Arguably the first wonder drug, opium was highly effective in treating pain in a number of illnesses. It was a medical miracle, but it also turned out to be hopelessly, cripplingly addictive. They eventually learned this, as did the Greeks and the ancient Chinese. We've known for a long time that opium is addictive, but we haven't always known why. The opium gum of the poppy contains five active ingredients, and one of them is morphine. A derivative of morphine is heroin. Another active ingredient of the poppy is Thebane, which today gives us a suite of prescription opioids, including oxycodone, whose prescription name is OxyContin. Today, we are fighting an opioid epidemic. But it's not the first. At the end of the 19th century, a new wonder drug was introduced to help curb the addictive properties of morphine, which itself had been created to halt the addiction to opium. The new wonder drug was heroin. It was an effective painkiller, and the widespread introduction of it seemed like a good thing. 
It was excellent. It was a euphoric agent. It was a painkiller. It crossed the blood-brain barrier much more efficiently than did morphine. And people thought, great, now we finally can separate pain relief from addiction. But what ended up happening was morphine addicts became heroin addicts. All right. But they didn't know that when they started with morphine. I mean, it was literally a godsend, wasn't it? Yes, as was opium. I mean, opium users eventually became opium addicts, and then people thought, okay, well, we're going to separate pain relief from addiction by purifying opium's most abundant product, morphine, and opium addicts became morphine addicts. And then people thought, all right, we'll, we'll synthesize, chemically modify morphine to make diacetylmorphine, otherwise known as heroin, and morphine addicts became heroin addicts. We just don't seem to be able to learn this lesson. Uh, just to be clear, now, all these products heroin, opium, morphine, uh, they all come from the same plant, right? They're all the same thing in a way. Yeah, so technically the definition would be if it is directly obtained from the opium plant, like codeine, for example, or morphine, then it's an opiate. If it's synthetically modified, so for example, morphine is synthetically modified to form heroin, then that's an opioid. All right. So the problem here is that the problem that medical science kind of created is uh, derived from the fact that they believe that nobody should suffer from pain. I'm with them there. I mean, I've been in hospitals. I don't want pain either. Uh, But this led to the addiction. It was sort of like a genie in a bottle. They were going after something that would have tremendous medical benefit, but it had this unfortunate side effect that they didn't seem to be able to avoid. No, you're right. I mean, pain brings us all to our knees. And if you're in extreme pain, that affects, you know, your your level of stress, obviously, which can affect things like your blood pressure, affect things like your immune response. So trying to abate pain is critical. I think what we've learned is we became, I think, too reliant on what are very powerful pain relievers like these opioids. And I think now we're going to try and hopefully take a step back and at the very least not prescribe them for as long and also to try other things. All right, but that's maybe an ex post facto uh, point of view, is it not? I mean, uh, you know, did they do something wrong by introducing these compounds? The mistake was not, I think, in creating powerful pain relievers. I think the mistake was in believing that we could more readily separate pain relief from addiction. So, for example, when we synthetically modified a component of opium called thebane to make oxycodone, again, we thought we had separated pain relief from addiction. And there was a very influential pain specialist in New York City named Russell Portnoy who said people needed to get over their opiophobia, which is to say their fear of opioids, and that we should be much more liberal in our use of, of opioids like oxycodone. And as a consequence, you know, tens of thousands of people suffer from and die from uh, these narcotic addictions every year. So we've clearly gone too much in one direction. Okay. Uh, Sounds like Portnoy had a complaint there, though, that I could sympathize with. (laughs) So to speak, that, you know, you shouldn't suffer from pain. But don't they test these compounds first to see if they're addictive? I mean, what was going wrong here? He says, look, we're going to modify these things. We already have modified these compounds so that they will, you know, stop the pain, but won't start the addiction. How is it that they could have gotten that wrong? Well, I think the paper on which he originally based his his comments was published in, not surprisingly, a journal called Pain. It involved 38 people uh, who were on opioids like oxycodone, only two of whom became addicted. And he said these people who became addicted actually had had a problem with addiction in the past. Therefore, I think we can liberalize our use of these very powerful uh, painkillers to not just include people who are in hospices, who are in the sort of the last few days of their life and shouldn't spend those last few days screaming out in pain, but rather should extend it to everyone who's in any kind of pain. And I think we oversold that. And within really a couple years, there was a paper in the New England Journal of Medicine that said that that paper was wrong, that these products were far more addictive than claimed and that we had to be more careful. Uh, 38 sounds like a fairly small sample. 
that was part of the problem. Yes, yeah. it was a small sample. I think we wanted to believe, as always, you want to believe that in the magic, and uh, the magic wasn't there. Well, let's talk about another case, what was considered a modern treatment for mental disorder back in the 30s, for schizophrenia in particular, the lobotomy, kind of a barbaric approach, cut out some of the brain there. What were people thinking when it was attempted? Was it considered good science? Hey, look, we'll solve this problem by just removing part of your brain. Well, the person who originally uh, invented it, if you will, a guy named Igaz Moniz, who was a Portuguese neurologist, won the Nobel Prize for the developing of what he called a leucotomy. When it crossed the Atlantic Ocean, it was called a lobotomy. And I'm sitting here in Philadelphia where probably the nation's biggest lobotomist trained and for a while lived and then ultimately performed 7,000 lobotomies in the United States. What he did was he sort of modified the procedure by Moniz. He, he would take essentially what was an ice pick. He would put it in the upper inner aspect of the orbit, sort of next to the eye. And then he would take a small hammer and drill it about three inches into the brain. He did that on both sides, no anesthesia, no sterilization. And took about six or seven minutes and was like the drive-through lobotomy. And he did 7,000 lobotomies in the United States. He, he had days where he did 20, 30, 40 lobotomies at a time. He was the nation's lobotomist. His name was Walter Freeman Jackson. He trained here at Penn's Medical School, which is where I teach. How did it leave the patients? I mean, were they cured of their schizophrenia? Well, I think what he did was he took patients who could be violent, for example, and made them far more apathetic. But in addition, you know, some of these patients suffered cerebral hemorrhages, which, which is to say bleeding in their brain, which could cause permanent seizure disorder and death. They suffered incontinence of bowel and bladder, strokes, motor difficulties, sensory difficulties. It was... At the time, you know, hailed. It was hailed by the New York Times. Edgar Munez was considered a brave explorer of the, the human brain. Uh, the New England Journal of Medicine claimed that lobotomies were a rational approach. And at the time, remember, this is before we had drugs like Thorazine and Tofranil. So this really functioned as that. It was in many ways a sedative, if you will, a very powerful sedative agent because it made people detached, apathetic. Um, it was seen as a magical cure. And in fact, Rosemary Kennedy, you know, John F. Kennedy's sister, Robert F. Kennedy's sister, Joe Kennedy's daughter, um, you know, was, was lobotomized and was rendered, frankly, largely vegetative for the rest of her life. It, I can't help but thinking of one flew over the cuckoo's nest and Jack Nicholson, right? That, exactly right. That's right. <laughs> Nurse Ratchet. <laughs> Nurse Ratchet. Were there people challenging the practice at the time? Or did Walter Freeman have a free hand. You said that he was uh, lauded for doing this. He was by including powerful sort of psychiatric agencies and uh, organizations. But no, there certainly was very soon a groundswell of anger against what he was doing. And he ended his life really in shame. I think he was sort of booed off the stage, frankly, towards the end of his life. As lobotomies, it became clear that they were not what they were claimed to be. There was indeed a documentary that was made about Walter Freeman, and it uh, took a very you know, negative stance. But doesn't this really invoke the question of hindsight, kind of a leitmotif here? Because at the time, lobotomies were considered an effective, even the best practice for, for treating these, uh, these problems, the schizophrenia. How do we judge the practitioners for what they did when what they were doing was considered good? No, I think that's a really important point. It's always easy in retrospect. And at the time that we did those lobotomies, it was considered one of many, I guess one could argue, therapies of despair, which is to say we had other kinds of shock treatments in addition to electroconvulsive therapy, which actually still survives for some patients. 
we did other things like metrazole shock, where you would give a patient a drug that would cause them essentially to have seizures and or, or insulin shock therapy, um, it, which is really very much like what we did in the very old days, which is the snake pit therapy, which is to say a patient would be taken down a, a dark hallway, and then they would suddenly be exposed to this pit of snakes as a way to try and shock them out of their, their mental disability. Uh, this was really not much different than that and was pretty much as effective. Okay. But in your stories of science gone wrong, I mean, there is the usual rejoinder that the nature of science is, you, you know, you have this hypothesis and you test it out. And if it turns out that the hypothesis is wrong, then you correct that, that science is self-correcting. So uh, how are the stories that you profile in your book uh, any different? No, I think that's that's exactly right. And, and it's probably not a fair subtitle. Uh, you know, Seven Stories of Science Going Wrong should probably be more about scientists than science. I mean, scientists get it wrong all the time. That's okay. They're human. Sometimes they doggedly stick to a hypothesis, even though it's been disproved. And scientists get it wrong all the time. There are 4,000 papers that are published in the medical and scientific literature a day. And they follow, as you would imagine, a bell-shaped curve. Some are excellent. Some are awful. Most are more or less mediocre. You can pretty much find a paper that says anything. So scientists get it wrong. But ultimately, that I think the salvation is in reproducibility. If you're wrong, you're going to be shown to be wrong. But if you're right, then you know other investigators working in, with different populations on different continents will find that you're right. So there is no hiding. The idea of a Pandora's lab, the title of your book, suggests that there are some areas that science you know, shouldn't have tread into. This sounds like a very common theme in science fiction film. You know, there are some things man was not meant to know. Uh, I, I kind of wonder whether you believe there are some areas of research or medical science where science simply shouldn't go. That's great, um, because that's it. I mean, you know, Dr. Victor Frankenstein probably represents that, right? He cobbled together all these sort of human body parts, and then he unfortunately picked a brain that was from a murderer, and he, using electricity, brought that back to life, right? That man back to life, Frankenstein, it's alive. Somehow, despite that, he managed to be eight feet tall and fluent in, in French and English. I'm not sure how that happened, but in any case, that is an example, right, of fear that we've gone where we shouldn't go. GMO foods are, by some uh, activists, considered to be Franken-foods, right? This notion that we've gone where we shouldn't go, and now you have things like the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which is a gene editing system, which has tremendous hope for what it can uh, do. Um, but, you know, you worry, when have we gone too far? And I think as long as we do it responsibly, we haven't. But, you know, how about, you know, the Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project? Did we go too far? Should we have used our knowledge of physics to create bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki that, you know, killed hundreds of thousands of people? Um, you know, when do we go too far? It's a good question. I'm, I'm not sure I, I know the answer to that question, but certainly science has to be done at least responsibly, hence the birth of groups like physicians for social responsibility, really born of the Manhattan Project. As far as heroin and lobotomies go, obviously it's pretty clear how harmful they were. But you also write about DDT, not about the scientists who created it, but about the ecologist, the conservationist, Rachel Carson, who warned us about it. She said that DDT could harm fish, birds, and other wildlife, and that was true. But how did she cross the line then? That was the hardest chapter to write because, to me, Rachel Carson was a hero. I mean, she was a, a woman who was a science writer at the time. It was very difficult to stand up and make the kind of statement she did, which was that we should be careful about what we're doing to the environment because it's going to affect the environment. She was absolutely right. The problem was she overstated the case of DDT. She claimed that it caused human diseases it didn't cause. She claimed that it caused uterine cancer, that it caused leukemia, that it caused children to be fine one minute and dead hours later. That wasn't true. And because she was such a powerful writer, she ultimately let, and I don't think 
think this was something she necessarily advocated for in her book, but she was so powerful as, as a writer. She was a best-selling author that people became scared of DDT, and it created the birth of the Environmental Protection Agency, one, one of the first acts of which was to eliminate DDT for agricultural use. But unfortunately, that also meant it got eliminated for public health use, and millions of people died needlessly of malaria. I mean, finally in 2006, the World Health Organization reinstated the use of DDT because they knew it was a powerful weapon in the fight against malaria. But for those intervening decades, people suffered needlessly. Well, Paul, your book, uh, to some, would seem to be making the case that science gets it wrong so often. uh, Maybe science is, I don't know, irrelevant or maybe even malevolent. That that sounds like a dangerous case to make at a time when science is uh, somewhat under attack. Well, I sure hope that's not the take-home lesson. I certainly don't think that. I I think that although scientists get it wrong, I do think science does get it right. And now, I think, certainly with the current administration, you feel that science is losing its place as a source of truth, and that would be dangerous. I mean, you know, climate change denialism or evolution denialism, um, you know, are certainly dangerous, which is not to say that that conservatives are the only ones that get uh, science wrong. I mean, if you want to see just an example of liberal science denialism, just walk into a, a Whole Foods store you know, where you can see, you know, BPA-free, GMO-free, gluten-free products that are being sold um, that represents at some level liberal science denialism. Paul Offit, thank you so very much for being with us. Thank you so much. Paul Offit is professor of pediatrics and an attending physician in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is the author of Pandora's Lab, Seven Stories of Science Gone Wrong. As Dr. Offit said, scientists may get it wrong, but science gets it right. But is science losing its place as a source of truth? Consider what happens on the floor of the United States Congress. How pinstripe politicians twist science to win votes next. It's our monthly look at critical thinking on big picture science. Skeptic check, science breaking bad. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Individual scientists sometimes may get it wrong, but science overall gets it right. But for science results to be truly effective, they need to be in the hands, and also the mouths, of responsible spokespeople. Now, did you see a UFO? I did. 
And, uh, and also, you have to keep in mind that Jimmy Carter saw a UFO. Because we keep hearing that 2014 has been the warmest year on record, I asked the chair, you know what this is? It's a snowball. And that's just from outside here. So it's very, very cold out, very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. Science journalist Dave Levitin was writing for factcheck.org during the years leading up to the 2016 election, and he was kept busy, as you can imagine, double-checking statements made by politicians on both sides of the aisle on all sorts of subjects. Politicians twist the truth, sure. But Dave Levitin found the misleading claims about science particularly vexing as they were undercutting the work of actual experts, which these politicians were not. Mr. Levitin's book, Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent, and Utterly Mangle Science, includes a number of tricky arguments that representatives use to score political points, reading like a poker player's handbook. There's the butter up and undercut, the uncertain uncertainty, and when all bets are off, the straight up fabrication. Dave Levitin describes what happens when civil servants play the role of citizen scientists on C-SPAN. I am not a scientist, Dave. Give, give me an example of when that phrase was uh, famously used. Well, I, so I looked back to try and figure out where it came from, and the first example I found, and I can't promise it's the very first time, but the first one I found was actually Ronald Reagan in 1980. As he was still running for president, actually, he, he answered a question about some environmental issues, and he, he used it to talk about sulfur dioxide emissions and volcanoes, the primary component of acid rain. And he was dramatically wrong about the actual emissions, but he did use that line, the I'm not a scientist, but. It's always the but that matters the most. All right. So he was saying, I am not a scientist. I mean, you could say that's merely a factual statement, but in this case... It was a statement that was destined to give more weight to his claim than, than otherwise would have been the case. I, I really don't understand that. Yeah, it, it's a weird one because uh, politicians in general do not use that sort of formulation for other things. They don't say, you know, I, I'm not an expert on the Middle East and then go on to talk about what to do about the Middle East. They just talk about it. When it comes to science, I think they're trying to, it's a bit of a smokescreen. They're trying to, to make it seem like science is sort of unknowable. And of course, they're not an expert, but they're still going to talk about it anyway. So it it functions as a bit of a way out of talking about actual science. But does it have a component of, well, I am not a scientist because most of the people listening to him are also not scientists. So now suddenly now suddenly he's on their side against those nerdy, pointy-headed guys with the uh, tweed jackets? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's definitely one of the effects is that, you know, it sets scientists off. It sets experts off as somehow separate from us and, and that we shouldn't necessarily listen to them because we're, we're the normal people and we, we know it's best kind of thing. Yeah. You know, elite has become a dirty word. Didn't used to be. That's true. Um, yeah, no, that that's a, a tough one, really, the sort of assault on expertise and assault on... on you know, any, anyone who knows something about a topic is somehow less trustworthy all of a sudden. Yeah. So what was the political motivation of President Reagan in this case? What was he trying to accomplish here? Basically, I mean, this this actually went on for years once he became president. He was trying to sort of delay or, or avoid action on cutting sulfur dioxide emissions, which was, you know, produced by factories and by coal burning or oil plants and everything like that. Um, He was trying to stop any action by the government from limiting those emissions. And if you look at what he said literally, he said, you know, well, my feeling is that volcanoes are probably more important than uh, oil burning plants or vehicle emissions or anything like that. That wasn't true. 
No, and he specifically called out Mount St. Helens because Mount St. Helens had erupted recently in very dramatic and deadly fashion. But yeah, he, he claimed that that volcano alone was, was more than human sources of sulfur dioxide. And in fact, it was orders of magnitude in the other direction that human sources were completely dominated all volcanoes, first of all, but that one in particular that he was talking about. He also sort of got wrong exactly where sulfur dioxide comes from from human sources. He mentioned cars, but that's not really the main issue. It's it's more large-scale industrial sources like power plants and factories. Another example you give in your book is when groundbreaking research is described as silly, you know, tried or trivial or something. Do you have an example of that? Sure. So that's the type of, of sort of misleading statement that kind of bothers me the most because it really serves to undermine basic scientific research. A good example is when Senator Rand Paul made a joke about fruit flies and how ridiculous this one particular line of research about fruit flies, whether or not they prefer, male fruit flies prefer younger female fruit flies. And when you describe it that way, yeah, that sounds like a pretty silly waste of government funding for science. But the actual research in question was much more relevant and interesting than that. It's just that the way you describe it, it's bad. I mean, the real research was about how sexual reward promotes healthy aging. And when you put it that way, it sounds a lot more sort of reasonable. Actually, fruit flies are the lab rats of uh, biology, aren't they? I mean, they, yeah, uh, it, it, it's it, it's actually a really old tactic. I mean, this dates back to a, a Democratic senator, William Proxmire, used to give out the Golden Fleece Awards, which were basically the same concept. He would pick out some bit of government spending that sounded ridiculous, and he'd give a, a you know quote unquote award, sort of calling out that this wasteful spending, and then it it, it was taken up again by. Um, Senator Tom Coburn released the Waste Book, which like a whole long list of these sort of government, you know, wasteful things. They're not all science, but a lot of them do tend to be because it's so easy to describe science in in silly terms if you if you just completely remove all nuance and subtlety from it. You talk about various techniques, if that isn't a mischaracterization, used by politicians to kind of undermine science, you know, butter up and undercut, certain uncertainty, just plain mendacity, where they just lie. Could you give me a kind of quick guide? It sounds like a how-to-do-it manual, really. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, the book sort of it arose out of the time that I spent on staff at factcheck.org when I was checking politicians' claims on science, and I started to, to just see some patterns. So I, start, I decided to sort of collect them. So the book is, is, it is sort of designed as a, a bit of a playbook, I guess, in terms of the methods that politicians use. And yeah, they, they do run a pretty wide range of technique, and some of them are, are very hard to ignore the intent behind it. You have to sort of, you have to try to do it. Some, if we're being charitable, science is complicated. People do get things wrong sometimes without intending to. So I, I try not to completely assign intent every time, but there are some where it's unavoidable. Well, well, give me an example. I mean, butter up and undercut. So that's one where intent is actually sort of required. The idea there is that you're going to talk about some sort of scientific endeavor or agency that is generally popular. So it's very hard to just criticize it outright. But at the same time, you're using that as a sort of misdirection. So you're going to try and cut funding for it while buttering it up. So this has happened with things like NIH funding. So National Institutes of Health is generally a popular thing when you say, you know, cancer research. People are in favor of funding cancer research. Or NASA is another one. NASA enjoys pretty widespread popularity. So it's you can't just say, you know, shut down NASA or cut all of its funding. Instead, you say, NASA's great. Let's go to Mars. But also, let's cut all the climate science funding. 
Dave, you mentioned uh, NIH as an example of where this misguided uh, information came into play. What what was going on there? So that one, I actually look back, that was from, from George W. Bush. And there was a particular speech, and he, he mentioned it multiple times, but there was one speech where he went to an NIH facility and, and gave a speech that was, you know, incredibly sort of laudatory about NIH science and all the great discoveries there. And he was it was actually to do with avian influenza, I think, at the time. They were putting a lot of money toward flu readiness and research. But at the same time, over the course of his presidency, he spent a lot of time trying to cut or at least limit funding to NIH. And after Bush did that, because he sort of limited NIH funding for years, we then, you know, fast forward a little while and suddenly the Ebola crisis hits long after Bush is out of office. And the director of NIH at the time said that if we had not had this sort of decade-long stagnation of, of NIH funding, we probably would have already had an Ebola vaccine. So there is a sort of direct result there of limiting this funding and then suddenly a crisis hits and we weren't ready for it because of, of that, you know, bit of misdirection. What about certain uncertainty? Is that uh, is it lying statistics kind of thing? Yeah, so th- that one's actually sort of been in the news a lot recently. The certain uncertainty, the idea there is that you're hyping up the, the unknowns in a, in a given field as a way of, again, delaying action on something. So this actually happened with acid rain a bunch in the 80s, and now in particular it happens with climate change. People talk about how there are still uncertainties in, in the data or in the model projections regarding you know rates of sea level rise or... Uh, economic impact uh, of a given policy. And because we don't know everything, this is what they would say, we, because we don't know everything, then we shouldn't do anything. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty bad bit of misdirection, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, in, in a sense, the scientists inevitably shoot themselves in the foot because they would be the first to admit that, look, science is always an ongoing process. And so we can't be 100 percent certain. Right. So that gives a wedge, I suppose. And then there's cherry picking. There's a rather theatrical example involving James Inhofe, who brought a snowball to the Senate floor. What was the point he was trying to make? Yeah, so, I mean, cherry picking is probably, you know, pretty familiar to a lot of people. But this one, I guess you could call it a fallacy of anecdotal evidence. He was, he he brought a snowball from literally outside the Capitol and threw it to the chairman of the Senate just as a way of saying, well, it's cold outside and there's snow on the ground. Therefore, there's no such thing as global warming. I mean, it's it's patently absurd, of course, but it is it is an example of cherry picking when you take this day, this one cold day, uh, as somehow being representative of a, a longer trend. Your book uh, doesn't restrict itself to how politicians in general abuse science, but how certain kinds of politicians do that. Is there is there some sort of pattern there? <laughs> well, do you mean in terms of which side of the aisle they're coming from? Well, for example, but maybe there's something else. I don't know. Maybe the younger ones do you know behave differently than the older ones yeah. or <laughs> the blue-eyed um, ones. I don't know. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I address this in the introduction. I do not mean the book to be sort of a partisan statement, but it is very hard to avoid the fact that there are just more examples available of Republicans getting science wrong or misusing or lying about science uh, over the past few decades, really. I don't really find that statement to be, you know, a problematic partisan statement. I did include some Democrats in there. They certainly are not immune from getting science wrong or using some of these techniques that I'm talking about. But it's just sort of naive to claim that it's it's balanced evenly. What would you say is the consequence of these misleading statements by politicians? You could say, well, no harm, no foul. I mean... Yeah, I mean, I, I think that... By letting sort of these, a lot of these types of statements stand, we're dumbing down the general discussion, right? We're, we're taking a lot of the nuance and subtlety and 
sort of detail out of discussions around science. And and because politicians in general have very large platforms, and of course, increasingly so with social media now, they can reach people very quickly and very loudly. And if they're reaching people with misrepresentations of scientific reality, then you're going to end up with a poorly informed public on pretty important issues. So it's hard to draw a straight line from this statement led to this thing happening. But I think the general effect is that people just don't appreciate science as much and they have incorrect ideas of some of the topics that are you know, dramatically important to our lives. Dave Levitin, thanks so very much for talking with us. Thank you very much for having me. Dave Levitin is a science journalist, and he is the author of Not a Scientist, How Politicians Mistake, Misrepresent, and Utterly Mangle Science. Well, no mincing words with that title. No, and we've heard a lot of very interesting examples in this episode. But, you know, the bottom line is science benefits from having negative feedback. Unlike so much human activity, I'm thinking of politics, economics, things like that. Things can go off the rails and keep going. But with science, there's something that's always working to bring it back on to the rails. Thanks to the rigorous duo who help us make a new show from scratch each week, senior producer Gary Niederhoff and operations manager Barbara Vance. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life, including helping send spacecraft to the cold, icy realms of the outer solar system. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking on Big Picture Science Skeptic Check. This episode, Science Breaking Bad. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science episodes, well, you'll find them in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know we're also a podcast? Subscribe to the BiPiSci podcast, and you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. And to reach us directly with your comments, throw in some faint praise, and then email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.